the 12th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now the text is verse 9 through the last verse in the scripture, in the book. And so let me read that and uh, we'll go from there. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is, is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Now we're not surprised when we find philosophers struggling with the answer to, to questions. We're not surprised when we find a philosopher trying to struggle with life's deep questions. And when the scientist questions, that doesn't surprise us, we expect that. For the scientist is taught not to take anything at face value. He wants proof. He wants evidence. He wants facts. Science and cynicism seem to go together, don't they? Intellectualism and pessimism seem to fit. There are some that will not take just plain, simple answers by faith. We've got to know more than that. And to the cap-and-gown crowd of academia, there are no simple answers. Life isn't simple. I want to know, I want to know some evidence. I, uh, I guess that people deal with contradictions in different ways. I read about a guy who was in med school and he said his professor was up one day talking and he was following along in the lecture and reading in the text and he saw that what the guy was saying in his lecture didn't match what was in the, in the text. So he went up to the guy after class and he said, pardon me, sir. The guy was pretty stupid to do this in the first place. Pardon me, sir, but I've been listening to your lectures and I've been following along in the text and some of the things you're saying doesn't match up with what's in the text. The teacher said, oh really? Well bring me that text. I want to see where the contradiction is. And so he handed him his book. He said, show me where there's the contradiction. And so he did. He just ripped out the pages. And he said, now there, we agree. I guess there are different ways to deal with contradiction. To answer those problem, those questions, when they don't match up. And, and to some degree, I guess there's some people who can do it that way and get by with it, but others can't. The scientist won't. He wants to see it match up. He wants to see evidence and proof and fact. Neither can the preacher do that. So that when a preacher questions and when a preacher doubts and when a preacher struggles, 
And when a preacher takes the text and when it, what he can't understand or can't believe, he just rips it out. You let a preacher try that. And so when a preacher doubts and when a preacher questions the word, the book, church is split. And the shock wave of that is heard round the world. The unwritten, wa- ra- unwritten law of the preacher is, thou shalt not struggle, thou shalt not doubt, thou shalt not rebel. And herein lies the secret, herein lies the answer, the mystery of the book of Ecclesiastes. What makes this book different? And why is this book so confusing to the people who read it? It's because it is a preacher who says such things like, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It is a preacher who struggles and doubts. It is a preacher who said, I've tried everything in life and it's all empty. There's nothing to it. And that shocks us. And to understand that this man is no Elma Gantry and he's no 8th century B.C. Bishop Pike. He's Solomon, the Speaker of the House. And he says, and the book of, of Ecclesiastes, the first five words of it, and I want you to turn back just by, you know, for the, for the uh, sake of, of review, and look at the first five words, the words of the preacher. The words of the preacher. And because these are the words of a preacher, we are shocked. I suppose that one of the first things we have to learn as preachers is to, is to learn with whom we can share our doubt. I know a pastor who said one day he came home from church and his sister was visiting. They were best of friends. He and his sister were just best of friends. And they were sitting around the dinner table and, and, his, and, his, and his sister looked at him and said, Honey, do you really believe everything you said this morning? And he said, I, I looked across the table at her and he said, I answered, probably not. And she said, well, I won't tell anybody. I'm supposed to believe everything that I say from this pulpit, 100%. And I'm supposed to live it. I want you to show me one preacher who does. The only difference is that we haven't kept a journal. And that's where this book is unique. It's the journal of a preacher who struggles and doubts. A preacher who sees that some things in life don't match up with the text. A preacher who sees that some of the things that he's been saying are contradicted by some of the things in his text. And that's why he says in chapter 1, verse 2, it's all empty and there's nothing to it. And he says that, that's his familiar phrase, 30 to 35 times. It's found in every chapter except two. And then he comes to verse 3 of chapter 1, if you still have the place, and he gives the thesis of the book. And this is the thesis. What is the advantage of all of this? What advantage do we have? And that is it in a nutshell. Why do we keep going on? What advantage is there in believing in God? That's it in a nutshell. Who writes? Who's writing this? You see. 
Joseph Short said that the person who wrote the book of Job was a dramatist. And the psalmist was a lyrical poet. And the author of Jonah was a short story writer par excellence. And the writer of Genesis and Exodus is a historical novelist. But the author of the book of Ecclesiastes is a photographer. Can't you just see him, the preacher, going around with a camera around his neck. And what he's doing, he's just taking snapshots of life, life as it really is. Life beyond the pulpit, you see, where it's safe and secure. Life that as it really is, he's just telling it like he is. And he shows the cynicism and the doubt and the gloom and the despair that is, that is present in every life and the humdrum nature of work and the foolishness of investments. And he says it's empty and there's nothing to it. And he comes to verse 12 and 13 of chapter 1 and he makes such statements that a person, you, you'd think this is the statement made by a person who had lost his mate or parents who had sold their life and found their children thumbing their nose at them. And this is the word of a preacher. And so we just kind of breathe a sigh of relief when we get to the end of this thing. And when we do come to the 12th chapter and get to the end of it, we find the preacher preaching a sermon. Now you'd expect preachers to do that, and we do it at the very end. The last, this text I've read is the text of a sermon. There's no better text, as a matter of fact, I've ordained ministers, I've used this text. There's no better text to speak to ministers than this one, because as he comes to the end of this book, he's describing what he really is. Now look at this. It divides into two sections. Section 1, verses 8 through 12. Section 2, verses 13 and 14. In the first section, he talks of self. In the second section, he talks of God. In the first section, he deals with that which is horizontal. In the second section, he deals with that which is vertical. In the first section, he says, the search is over, and this is what I really am. In the last section, he gives some practical advice in conclusion. And so I want us to take this sermon apart and look at it. Because what he's saying, if you'll pardon me now for a moment, I want to take this passage and I want us to really take a look at what is really at the heart of what the preacher does. And I don't suppose there is a preacher on earth that doesn't have some questions, that doesn't struggle in life and have some doubts. I don't think there is a preacher on earth that could ever say, that I do 100% what I preach. I want to meet him, if, he, if there is such a, an animal. But putting all of that aside, here is what the preacher is. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely, totally convinced that this is what a preacher is. Now look, he's a person, he says, he, a, a preacher teaches the people knowledge and he ponders over words, right words, and he deals with those words carefully and he compares them. And he worries over those words like a dog gnawing on a bone. Look at this little dog, you know, out there in the backyard. He chews on that bone to get every bit of the gristle. He works with words, does the preacher. 
Now, whatever else you feel is my responsibility. This is what I am, and this is what, I, what I'm called to be. Someone who works with words, who searches for just the right word, who thinks about them, who tries to choose the better of the two, who does research. And after you've been in a place for about eight years and six months, everybody's heard all your stories, you know, and all your wow words, and it just becomes more difficult and, and more difficult. And the people come and they want to be fed. So that if you, if you hear a good sermon when you come into this place, it's because some work has taken place. And I assure you, it's hard work. And whatever else I am, this is what I am. And I'm convinced that this is what I am primarily, a person who is to teach. And I am to teach with words, working with words. Now, I may not visit everybody that thinks, you know, I may not visit where everybody thinks I ought to visit. And I may not do everything, I may not administrate like everybody thinks I ought to administrate. But I do know that what I'm about is to deal with words. And that's hard work. If you don't believe it, you spend eight years of your life trying to preach five times a week and see how easy that is. I mean, that, it's not easy. It's not an easy deal. Listen to what Wallace Hamilton said. This agonizing process of finding the word, the right word to fit the meaning, to fit the meaning is the enduring struggle of the church. A more urgent matter for the church than any other institution. Consider the assignment. We are to preach the gospel, to bring good news of God to men, to make intelligible to the world the word of the living God. And we are to do it through the medium of words. Words are only the, to the only tools we have. We have to use the only language that we know, which is the human language. Yet we are called to communicate a divine ideal. And of course, it can't be done. The church has wrestled with it for 19 centuries and has never done it. Isn't that amazing? That the task of the church is to struggle with the word, the right word. And for 19 centuries, we've been trying to do it and we've never yet done it. You, you think this is an easy task? There are three things involved in it. In getting the right word, I believe. First is clarity. It's the ability to tell somebody something so they can understand it. Practical, down to earth, understandable. I think sometimes if, if we can't understand somebody, we label that person as, as being brilliant. And the guy that's real simple and practical and down to earth, we think he's shallow. I heard about these two people that left this lecture, and this, one of them turned to the other and said, man, that guy was smart, wasn't he? And the other said, yeah, I couldn't make any sense out of it either. You know, sometimes the most profound things that are said, sometimes the most profound things that are said are common and practical and down to earth. If you don't believe that, you ask the admin. And you look on television, 
and, and those guys are spending half a million dollars to say what they need to say in 30 seconds. They're not going to waste time with things you and I don't understand. Clarity. Second thing that's involved in getting the right word is poetry. Make it sing something that people like to hear, want to listen to, are thrilled by. But finally, there is vitality. Somehow in the finding of the right word, we have to make it live. Make it live. Now I believe this, and I don't want to be misunderstood, I, I, but I believe that this is true, that when a preacher preaches and he has the right word and he's struggled over it and he's found the right word, when he preaches, something happens that is comparable to the incarnation. For what happened in the incarnation was that the Word was enfleshed and people could see it and understand it and believe it and touch it. Something happened in the incarnation that, that where, where God's Word became flesh and when a person, when a preacher preaches the right Word, this Word begins to live. That's not easy. And they said of Jesus that His words were like hand grenades tossed among the crowd. They exploded in the minds of people and they heard Him gladly. If you are a teacher, then you need to think about what you say long before it comes out. Solomon must have been a guy carrying a little notebook through life, writing down just the right word. And why is it so important? Well, he says in verse 11, because words are like goads. Words are like goads. Now, if you, you may not, you, you probably never seen a goad. I've never seen one, but I don't know what they are. They were long um, sticks with a sharp metal end tip on it. And the workmen would use these, these sticks, these goads, to prod the animal on to, to action and, and speeding up his pace. And, and Solomon said that these words are like prods that move us on. The skeptic Hume was walking one night in the cold out in the snow and he met a man said, said this to Hume, where are you going? He said, I'm going to hear the preacher Whitfield preach. And his friend said, you don't believe that stuff, do you? He said, no, but that man does, and I can't stay away. There's something that prods us, with, that, that's in the Word that prods us. And he said, these words are like nails. It's a Hebrew word that means the, a tense stake spike that, that, that rivets the tent to the ground so that the preacher with the right word rivets the thought to the mind. And I, and, I, and I believe that I've done a good job if at night when you go home on Sunday night and you turn out the lights and there are these words riveted in your mind that you can't forget. Now listen to me carefully. There are two important things that you can do for the preacher. That is, you can release him to have time to find the right word. 
There is such an expectation concerning what the preacher is to do. You can release him to find, to have time in prayer and study, to find the right word. And it's a task that gets more difficult and more difficult. And secondly, you can pray that he'll find the right word because when the right word is found, it's like a goad, it's like a nail. Now, college students would look at verse 12 and say, Amen, but beyond this, my son, the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. I've noticed when school starts, it's so exciting. I love the fall of the year. I mean, they, we get it, you know, kids come to school and they just, you know, they just jumping in there and just ready to go, man. It's, it's, it's wonderful. By about this time of the year, man, is it getting tiresome. And all these notebooks we used to carry to class, now we don't. And all these notes we took, you know, this, this, this insatiable appetite to learn now is just, ooh, I can't wait until May, right? I read somewhere the other day that there is a computer that may, puts out 20,000 lines of verbiage per minute. That's 200 times faster than a person can read. Why? And this is a day of information, of copy and of words. And at the turn of this decade, there were being printed a hundred, there was being printed 125 new books a day so that the new printing of new books was in the amount of $658 million. We got so much to read. Let me ask you, do you read this book? I mean, do you really? When was the last time you read through one book in the Bible? And so all this stuff is being printed, etc., etc., that won't matter that much in eternity. And we do not read His Word. Now he comes to the conclusion. I like anticlimactic conclusions. And he just makes a simple conclusion. Write this down. We need to, we really have to take God seriously. And when he speaks, we better do what he says. Now you can come all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes and this man's search for meaning. The preacher's struggle with those things in life that don't match. But when it comes down to the bottom line, this is the bottom line. You better take God seriously. And when He speaks, you better do what He says. And the reason why is verse 14, for God will bring every act to judgment. That's the reason why. Now if the preacher has found the right word and he brings that word in the right in anointing. He speaks for God. And we better take God seriously. And when God speaks, either through His written word or through His spokesman, when God speaks, we better do as He says because 
we will give an account in judgment, plain and simple. You say, I don't believe that. I don't care if you don't believe that. What worries me is what God says. That in the end, the bottom line is this, that there's going to be a replay of your life. A replay of your life. And every, he says, underline, everything which is hidden will be brought to judgment, whether it is good or bad. Everything. There'll be a replay of your life. I don't know how he's going to do it. That doesn't bother me. I just know he is. In the little book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, he tells about that there's a portion of the brain. I was going to say what it was, but I'm always wrong when I get in there. And I want the right word. But there is a portion in the brain that a surgeon can take an instrument and touch that area of the brain and you relive every experience of the past and you, you literally relive it to the point that you can smell the way it smelled and you feel the way it felt, it felt and you, you share the way it, it was. Because everything that man experiences is... In this little book, it likens it to a, a uh, stereophonic recording. We'd call it tape. We put it on, it's on tape, and it's there. It's never erased. Now, if a surgeon can take an instrument and touch some part of the brain so that you relive every experience, you have any problem believing that someday, at some place, God and you are going to have a long talk about your life. And it doesn't matter, um, really, you know, about whether we're happy or not, whether we match stuff up or not, whether life is empty or full, whether it's futile or not. That doesn't matter. And that's the conclusion he comes to. The bottom line is this, that everybody will stand before God and, they'll, and He will replay His life. You know what that means? That means you better take this matter seriously. Let's pray together. Father, we can say all that we can put together in words, but the bottom line is that man stands before God in judgment. And every act, good or bad, will be brought to account. That's all that needs to be said. I pray tonight that you'll bring past before our minds, our lives, the good and the bad. That you'll bring us, Father, to an awareness of honesty or dishonesty. remember tonight I remember then that was the night I got everything straightened out in my life my understanding of God my understanding of my place that's where I made it all right I pray that'll happen in every heart and every life here in this moment for Jesus' sake
There are three invitations tonight, three in, just like every night, every morning. An opportunity for you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. The word is that apart from Jesus Christ, you're already dead. Separated from Him, spiritually dead. That Jesus Christ makes, makes you alive, gives you life. As the guy in the film tonight asked the question, have you come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know Him personally or would you say you're still in the process? The invitation tonight is for Christian people to come and rededicate their lives to Christ. Or maybe to join the church. Just a stanzas, all we'll sing. We want you to come. If you're coming, you come on the first word while we stand.